I know week one was kind of a um, uh, baptism by fire, and, and it may have come across as somewhat negative to you. Um, when a book starts with all is vanity, vanity of vanities, it's kind of a clue that it's going to be a little bit negative. But as we dig into tonight, we're, we're going to see that that theme doesn't go away. The vanity of vanities is all throughout the book. But what I want you to realize is as, as we study this book, keep it in the larger context. And I think I mentioned this last week. There are 66 books in the Bible, not one. And Ecclesiastes is not meant for you to read and study by itself. It's meant to be read in conjunction with all the other books of the Bible, old and new. And so if you do that, and what I'm hoping to do is weave in the New Testament as we go through this book so that we understand that when Solomon wrote it and during the days of Solomon's life, there wasn't a complete understanding of the redemptive plan of God yet. They didn't understand about Jesus. They didn't understand about heaven. They didn't understand completely about eternity. So a lot of what he has to say is negative because he's, he's operating somewhat from ignorance, even though he's the wisest man who ever lived. So keep that in mind as we go through it tonight. So what we want to do is look at chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to try to take uh, two to three chapters each week just so we can get through the book. My vision of Solomon is Don Quixote. You're probably familiar with the story. You probably had to read it in high school or maybe in college. It's a classic. It's one of my favorite stories. And it's about this guy who uh, tilts at windmills. He's on this quest. Uh, and I think of Solomon in this light. He's on this Don Quixote-like quest trying to find something, trying to accomplish something, trying to get his hands on something. And so we find out that he, he's going to reign for 40 years. He's the son of King David. And somebody uh, wrote me an email and said, actually, he wasn't the second king, as I said last week of Israel. He was the third king because there was King Saul, and then there was King David, and then there was King Solomon. But actually, he was the fourth king because there was the son who took over the kingdom from David for a very short period of time. So uh, technically, he's the fourth king. I view him as the second king because Saul was not God's choice for king. It was the people's choice. David was God's choice, a man after his own heart. And then his son was God's choice. And so he reigned for 40 years. We think he died somewhere between the age of 65 and 70. Nobody knows for sure. But he lived a long life. He lived a long, very successful life. He lived a reign that had virtually no war, no enemies. He was wealthy, powerful, and we kind of covered that last week. But he's on this quest. But what's he searching for? And, and as I've studied the book and blogged through the book and thought about the book, I, I, I kind of boil it down to a number of things. And they're all significant, and they're all part of my life, and they're all part of your life. Because guess what? You're on a quest. Every guy in this room, regardless of how old you are, where you are in your stage of life, you're on a quest. And, and you're trying to get to something, achieve something, get your hands on something, just like Solomon. So one of the things he was after was just satisfaction. I, I want to be satisfied with life. And it's this idea of being contented, the sense of contentment that I've arrived. 
when you, we, when you can kind of rest and go, I'm done. It's the way I feel like when I, when I work out in the yard and I do a whole lot of stuff in the yard and I work really hard and then I finally get a chance to relax and I sit down in my yard that I've worked so hard on and then I see three other things I need to get done. Oh my gosh, I got to go weed that garden. And I'm still not done. I never seem to get that sense of satisfaction that I'm done. So I'll go pay to stay at a hotel and look at their yard that's in perfect shape and their pool's clean and I don't have to mess with it. But see, he, he's on a quest for satisfaction in life. He's on a quest for understanding. What's really interesting is God gave him wisdom. And the book tells us it's wisdom greater than any man before him and any man after him. But it also tells us that he was always searching for more wisdom. He wasn't satisfied with the wisdom God had given him. He was looking for earthly wisdom. And, and his ultimate goal is the capacity to understand and make sense of life. You ever, you ever had that dilemma where something happens and you go, what is going on? Why did that happen? Why me? Why, why not my neighbor? He's lost. Do it to him. Why did my car break down? Why did my f- job get laid off? Why, why me? This sense of trying to understand and, and gain meaning of life. He was on a quest. He most definitely wanted significance, which is interesting because he was the most significant man in the kingdom. He was the king. He, he had it all, and yet he, he wanted and seemed to struggle with the fact that I don't have meaning. What's my meaning? He says it over and over again. What's the meaning in life? What's my purpose in life? And, and here's what I know, because it's true of me and I think it's true of you, that you can achieve great things and you can reach a pinnacle where you've been trying to get, and then you get there and you realize, this isn't it. I'm not satisfied. I'm not content. I'm not happy. And so here's this guy, king, wise, wealthy. He's looking for these things. And ultimately, the main thing he's looking for is just joy, a sense of joy. And I think that sense of joy, that sense of delight comes from the first three things. If you don't reach those, if you never find those, you never have joy because it's, it's like trying to get that brass ring and you never can reach it. You never can get to it. So this is his quest. And again, it's a Quixote-like quest because as far as the book says, it begins and ends the same way. I just want to break the news to you. He ends with the same basic statement about vanity and futility and hopelessness and lack of satisfaction. So he never gets what he wants in life. He starts out, as we looked at last week, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And here's what the word all means in Hebrew. All. I'm a scholar. That's all it means. It means all. It means everything. Everything he's tried, everything he's looked at, and it's the Hebrew word habel. And, and, and actually, vanity is the Hebrew word habel, and that word is all throughout the book. It's vanity. It's vanity. And we looked at the meaning last week, but it's the idea that he can't find true satisfaction. No matter what I do, I buy, I purchase, I build, I make, I create. I marry 700 wives, I purchase 700 concubines, and I still am not satisfied. I still have a hard time believing that. 
but he just can't find what he's looking for. It, it's this idea that nothing really adds to life. I can't understand life. It doesn't make sense. You know, we, we, we're going to see tonight that he, he wrestles with the fact that I can live this long life, I can, I can be incredibly wise, I can build incredible palaces and gardens, and I can have money more than anybody else, and then I die, and I leave it all to some fool. Now, he never says he's talking about his son, and he probably had a lot of them, but he's probably thinking, I don't want to leave all this to my son or sons, because I don't know what they're going to do with it. But that's what he felt when he lived his life, when he looked back in his life, and, and none of it gave him significance. No significance. You know, there, there are probably some guys in the room who think, if I just had this, I'd feel more significant. If I just drove this kind of car, if I just had that job, or if I had a better job, if I made more money, I would feel more significant. And, and let me just tell you, and Solomon will back me up, it'll never happen. It'll be fleeting, and it'll fade. You'll never get to what you want that way. So he has no true joy in his life. And that to me is this, the saddest thing about the life of Solomon is that he really never enjoyed life. He never enjoyed the joy of life. And just, and I, I want to enjoy life. I, I want to enjoy the things that God's given me. And no, they're not perfect. And I don't have everything I think I need or everything I think I want, but I want to enjoy what I do have. And that's one of the messages he says over and over again as well. Just eat, drink, and enjoy, enjoy your work because that's really all you got. Because you don't know what comes next. But I want to live it with not that resignation, but, a, but the idea that, you know, God has blessed me in so many ways. And God's given me a good family. And God's given me a, a loving wife. And I've got health. And I've got a good job. And I, I want to live with joy. And I want to end my life with joy. And he didn't. He didn't have that joy in his life. So all throughout the book, he's going to mention his heart. And he, he was obsessed with his heart. And it was a common Hebrew thing to talk about the heart. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He's basically just talking to himself. I, I said to myself, go have fun. Just go have a good time. Enjoy yourself. Well, who's he talking to? He's, he's talking to his inner self. So it's conversations you have. When you're struggling with an issue or trying to make a decision, you're like, man, what, I don't know what to do. What should I do? You know, what, just, just do this. No, don't do that. And you start having an argument with yourself. That's what's going on. He's talking about his heart. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 3. I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, how far do you have to search to make that decision? But see, this guy was a thinker. This guy was a, he didn't just jump into stuff. He, he analyzed it and he looked at it and he said, okay, you know, there's wine. I know what wine does. I know how wine makes me feel. And, but he didn't just go grab a bottle of wine and get drunk. He, he thought about it. He processed it before he did it. I think he ultimately did it, but he was always thinking. Verse 10, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He, he, he pursued things because he found at least some form of reward. Um, why do people get drunk? Because it makes them feel better for a period of time. That's their reward. 
Why do people work hard? Because they get some benefit from it. They get either accolades or cash or something that makes them feel better. Recognition. So he, he didn't deny himself anything because he got a reward from it. And that word toil there is not just talking about work. It's the effort put into life. If you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, you're going to put some effort into that. And you can go wherever you want with that. But it's going to take some work to keep that many women satisfied and not killing each other. So everything he did required work, it required toil, it required effort, so he could get something out of it. Chapter 7, verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. See, this guy's so smart, he's almost too smart for his own good because he just can't stop looking at stuff. He analyzes and looks at folly. Go read the book of Proverbs, which he wrote. You know, he, he wrote, wrote uh, the Song of Solomon, which most people believe he wrote early in his life when he was young. And then midlife, he wrote Proverbs. He was a collector of Proverbs. He was a writer of Proverbs. And then at the end of his life, he writes this book. But he was obsessed with gathering information and searching out. And he says, not only did he search out to know wisdom and to seek the scheme of things, he, he's researching folly. Again, how hard do you have to research folly? Most of us just go do it. We don't even think about it. But he put thought into it. Because if he was going to be a fool, he was going to be a good one. And he was going to do the right foolish things. That didn't make sense, but that's the way his mind worked. Chapter 8, verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. Remember, that's just life on this earth when man had power over his, when man had power over man to his hurt. So his heart was real important to him. He always talked about his heart. What does it mean? It's the Hebrew word lab. And it's really just the inner man. It's your mind, your will, your emotions. So when the Hebrew talked about the heart, that's what he's talking about, not this thing beating in your chest. His inner self, his inner being. And, and he was concerned with his heart. He was concerned with his motivation, why he did the things he did. And I love this one definition. It's the inner determination to complete an intellectual task. You ever have somebody say, do you put your heart into it? That's really what it means. You have a task, an intellectual task that you need to do. Think through. And Solomon put all his heart into it. He was not half-hearted. He was not haphazard. He was not flippant. He, he poured his heart into everything. That's why this book is so important, because I know of very few men in the room who could, who could claim that. If I sat down with you over coffee and said, tell me about your life and tell me about your mistakes and tell me about your failures, you could. But what you couldn't do is, you know, before I made that failure, I put a lot of thought and effort into it. You, you may. But I think about the failures in my life, and most of them were made out of greed, stupidity, arrogance, pride, desire for something I didn't need and didn't, God didn't want me to have. I put really no thought into it and very little prayer into it. I just did it. Solomon was not that way. That's why what he has to say is so important for us to listen to. So he says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And then he says, and then I considered all that my hands had done. We looked at this verse last week. 
My heart and my hands. See, those things go hand in hand. What you do, ultimately, Jesus said, emanates from your heart. What you say emanates from your heart, your inner being. So when you do things that are contrary to the will of God, when you do things that are immoral, unethical, illegal, it's coming from the heart. It's coming from that inner man. And that is the problem that he's got is that he's, he's struggling with the heart. I, w- I want to do these things and I want to do what's right and I want to do what's well. But he, he's looking at anything and everything but who he should be looking at, God. Now, he mentions God all throughout the book. He's not an atheist. He's, he's not an agnostic. That's, that's, again, why the title of the series is, or the subtitle is, When Godly Men Live Godless Lives. He was a godly man. He loved God. He was loved by God. But he had an issue with not doing things the way God wanted him to do them. So he put a lot of toil. He put a lot of effort into all these things. And we looked at this last week, but in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, here's what he did. Here's the list. Buildings, palaces, fountains, pools, slaves, he, he did all these things. This is where he put his time and his effort into all this stuff. Seeking after wisdom, concubines, wives, you name it. He was a busy guy. Wasn't lazy. He was busy. But he did it all for him. And that's the saddest thing about all this is that there's nothing sinful about any of this except probably the concubine part. But he's only doing it for Solomon. He never mentions his wives. He never mentions his kids. He never mentions the nation of Israel. He mentions me. I did it for me. I, 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 I. That was his toil under the sun. So tonight I want to talk to you about two things that that jump out of these two chapters that come out of the, the, the mouth of Solomon. And I want you to be very careful to hear me that I am not recommending these things to you. Neither is Solomon recommending these to you. He is warning you and me about these things. And the first one is the vanity of doing. The vanity of doing. And every guy in this room, whether you're 18 or 80, struggles with the vanity of doing. We're a doing culture. We're a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of nation. Just get busy. Do it. Do something. So what... What he's talking about is the effort and the energy, the accomplishment that we put into life. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It is not sinful. It is a godly thing to work hard. It is a godly thing to want to labor and toil well and accomplish things. It's when you get it out of perspective. So what does he do? He did things for pleasure. We've kind of already looked at that. You do things for pleasure, right? You do things that bring you pleasure, and if you're like me, you would rather do the things that bring you pleasure than the things that don't bring you pleasure. I would rather swim in my pool than clean it. But I spend far more time cleaning it, it seems, than swimming in it. And so we do things to bring us pleasure. Pleasure's not wrong, but when pleasure becomes an obsession... And when pleasure begins to replace God in your life and the blessings that he can bring, it's wrong. It's sinful. So what did he do? 
He pursued laughter and entertainment, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. He pursued wine, verse 3. He pursued folly or silliness. For a guy who wrote so much about foolishness in the book of Proverbs, one of the reasons he could say so much about it is is that he tried it. He lived it. He did it. And he was kind of an expert on it. So he pursued folly. Why? Because it brings you pleasure. Fools live for pleasure. Fools would rather, you know, the Proverbs tell me a fool would rather be beaten with a stick than give up what he desires. That's how they're driven. And so he pursued pleasure. He did things that brought him a sense of accomplishment. That's a good thing. You should want to accomplish things. But we got to be real careful with it. He built buildings, verse 4. He designed buildings. He created things. He loved to solve problems. I like to solve problems. My problem is when I solve problems, I create more problems. But it's, it's this, this idea of doing things and accumulating things so that you can feel like you have accomplished things. And some of us have garages we can't park cars in because we've accumulated so much. And we have to rent buildings. And this is fascinating to me in our culture that we rent buildings to store things in that we never go back and look at. But we can't let, let them go. We can't sell them. I was talking to my older brother the other day and he has a storage unit. I said, what's in it? And he goes, I have no idea. I put it in there 10 years ago and I've never been back since. Why don't you get rid of it? I don't want to mess with it. So he pays somebody to keep his stuff in a hot building. This idea of accomplishment. How about the doing things that enhance my comfort? There's pleasure, and then there's comfort. Comfort's a different deal. We want to be comfortable. So he had slaves. I don't have any of those. I had six kids, but they all grew up. And they were lousy slaves anyway. I couldn't get them to mow the yard. I couldn't get them to clean their rooms. My two boys, when they were little, couldn't even hit the toilet when they peed. I mean, it's... But he had slaves. It says he has flocks and herds. He's got silver. He's got gold. He's got money. He can buy himself anything. He's got singers to sing to him. I have to turn on the, you know, stereo. I have to turn on my phone. He's just got... Raises his hand and singers come out and sing to him. Again, concubines. They keep showing up all the time. Pleasure, comfort, significance. So what's the byproduct of a life of doing? What did he learn? This is what he wants you to know. It's all about status. Isn't that our culture? Isn't it all about status? Isn't it funny that when you meet a man for the first time, what's the first thing you ask him? What do you do? Usually before you even ask his name. And depending on what he says, you either are interested or you lose interest. You know, if he says, well, I'm a lawyer, you run. If he's a doctor, you tell him about all your ailments. You know, it's all about status. It's all about what we wear and drive and where we live. He says in verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me. Now that's true. That is a true statement. You just don't go around talking about it. You don't brag about it. But he did. What's the requirement for a life of doing? This is interesting. Self-sufficiency. Remember that list? 
I made, I built, I, I acquired, I bought. It's self-sufficiency. You don't need God if you are addicted to a life of doing. Because you just go do. You don't need His help. You'd, most of us call on God when we've run out of tricks up our sleeve. When we don't know what to do and we've done everything we know to do and now we're at a loss and we're like, okay God, you're my last bet. I hope you come through. That's a life of doing. It's not a life of dependence. Should you do? Yes. But God would rather have you depend, rely, rest in Him. So self-sufficiency, He says, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. That, this was my reward. It's all about me. Self-sufficiency, doing things for me. What's the in-life assessment of a life of doing? So if you live your life, if you're in this room and you're in your 20s and you live a life focused on doing and accomplishment and acquiring and accumulating, here's what Solomon, if you could have coffee with Solomon, he'd sit across the table and he'd go, man, that's not going to end well. And here's what he says of his life assessment. It's all vanity. I know when I was 24, 25 years old, if I had sat down and had coffee with Solomon and he had told me that, I'd have gone, you silly old man. You don't know me. I'm pretty sharp. You made a lot of stupid mistakes because you're probably a stupid man. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to make your mistakes. Guess what I learned? I made a lot of stupid mistakes. In my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, now in my 60s, I still make them. Fewer and far less painful. But if I let myself get into the trap of doing, that's what happens. He says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it, and behold, it was all vanity, a striving after when, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's his coffee table discussion with you. Now, you may look at that and go, God, it's so dadgum negative. Yeah, but it's a warning. It's a man trying to tell you, a fellow human being trying to tell you, don't do as I did. I would much rather learn vicariously than personally. I would much rather learn from your mistakes than live them out on my own. Isn't that your desire for your kids? Man, don't do what I did. Don't, don't make the mistakes I did. And that's all Solomon's trying to warn us about is that, it, please, don't do this. If you read the Proverbs, all throughout the Proverbs, he said, my son, my son, my son, my son. He's warning the next generation how to live their lives. But he says it's all vanity. Here's the, the futility, the vanity of a life of doing is this. It's all been done before. I've been around long enough to know that nothing is new under the sun. You know, I, I love to read, and, and I, I listen to a lot of books on uh, audio, and I'm listening to a, a biography on Hitler, because I love World War II. And, and it's fascinating to listen to his story, to listen to his life from childhood to the end of his life, and there's nothing new under the sun. He was not that unique. There are many men like him. They just never reached the status he reached. 
There's nothing new. It's all been done before. The successful die just like everybody else. Every guy in this room is going to die someday. Right? And it really doesn't matter how much money you have. I've done more funerals since I've become a pastor than I ever want to think about. I've buried 16-year-old girls killed in car wrecks, and I've buried old men who died old age, in old age. And they all die, and they take nothing with them, and they leave everything behind. It happens to everybody. He says in verse 16, the wise may accomplish a lot, but they're all forgotten. You will be forgotten. Yeah, your family's going to remember you. Your loved ones will. I still remember my dad who died four years ago. But I don't think about him every hour of every day. Time passes. And that's the reality of life. He says, you can't take anything with you. And you can't. Other than the clothes on their back that have the split in the back, the people I've buried, don't take anything with them. They may have a watch on, but it's useless. This is the futility. If you, if you put all your eggs in that basket of doing, at the end of your life, it will all prove what? Futile. Again, this is not telling you don't do, don't work, don't accomplish, don't buy things. It's not telling you that. Just don't make that your focus of life, especially as believers. And ultimately, verse 20, it leads to despair. And that's where this guy is at the end of his life. He's somewhat despairing over life because he's realized, I can't ever do enough to get what I want. Remember, he's on that Don Quixote-like quest. And it's like a rat running on a treadmill. You just never get anywhere. And you just get tired. And that's where he is. So the vanity of doing, and the second thing he's going to talk about in chapter 3 is the vanity of the temporal. Now to set this up, you live in the temporal, right? You and I live in the temporal. We're stuck on this planet. You were born a certain day. You will die a certain day. You live under the sun in time and space in these bodies, right? That's what he's going to be talking about. And so chapter 3 opens up with a discussion about time and eternity. And you're very familiar with the words in the first eight verses. Um, back when I was growing up, um, there was a song written by the birds and performed by the birds. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. You know, it was very popular when I was a kid. And, and most everybody I knew didn't even know it came from Scripture. I don't think the birds really knew it came from Scripture. But they made a hit out of it. I listened to it the other day. Still a great song. But that's where this comes from. That's where that song comes from. So he's going to talk about time and eternity. And 29 times in eight verses, he talks about time. Anytime you see a word, a phrase, a concept repeated in Scripture, you should open your eyes and go, this must be important. So 29 times he talks about time. And he's going to contrast temporal versus eternal. Because he believed in eternal. He just didn't understand it. He was stuck in the temporal, and that he did understand, and so he just, he compares them. So here's his dilemma, he says in verse 11. He, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is, this is a dilemma for him because as he looks at his life, I live under the sun, <clears throat> I'm right now stuck under the sun, 
Everything happens under the sun. There's an eternity. I don't know when it begins. It obviously begins at my death, but I don't know what happens after that. So here I am. I've got this and I got that. And he says, nobody knows that. Nobody understands that eternity. Only God does. So I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to pour all my eggs into this basket. I'm going to study this, live this, take every advantage of this. And, it, it, and for him, it's a, a dissonance in his heart because he realizes that there's that, but I don't get it. There's this, and I don't understand it. And so he's wrestling in his heart. That the word that he's talking about when he talks about eternity is, is an interesting word in the Hebrew because it refers to an unending future. Time, he knows, ends because he's watched people die. He saw his dad die. He saw friends die. And so he knows there's an end to life, but there's an, there's an unending future. Does anybody in the room understand eternity? I don't think so. Over the years when my kids were little, they'd say, Dad, what, what, what is heaven like? And I'd try to explain it the best I could. And they'd say, well, what's eternity? Well, it's, it's like, it's forever. Well, what is that? It's like, it just never stops. It just never ends. How does that, how does that work, Dad? I don't know. It just does. I still don't understand it. I just finished blogging through the entire book of Revelation. I don't understand eternity. I just know it's going to happen. Well, Solomon was wise, but he didn't understand it. And he uses this phrase, from beginning to end. And that's literally what it means. It's this thing that... It has really no beginning or end. But in his limited human mind, he had, he had to look at it. Well, it's beginning and end. My life is a beginning. It has an end. But eternity, he just can't grasp. And it frustrates him and it confuses him. See, you and I and every human being on the planet has an awareness of eternity. It's built into us, Solomon says. That's why every people group that's ever existed has had some kind of a deity, some kind of an afterlife. You know, there, yes, there are atheists, but atheism is really kind of a new thing. In ancient cultures, there really were no atheists. They, they all believed in some kind of a deity, some kind of an eternity, because it's wired into us. And I think even most atheists struggle with just annihilation, the idea that everything just ends and that you just evaporate. Because we, we have this desire to want to live forever. We don't want to die. Solomon didn't want to die. But we just can't understand eternity. He couldn't understand eternity. He couldn't explain it. And so what he's stuck with, what you and I get stuck with, is that we only look at what we can see, touch, taste, feel. We get stuck in the temporal. We, we get bogged down on this and we lose sight of that. One of the reasons I want to study the book of Revelation starting in September after we study this is because Solomon struggled with a knowledge of the eternal, putting his hope and faith in the eternal. We shouldn't. Because we know how the story ends. We've give, been given the rest of the story that he didn't have. He didn't have the book of Revelation. And so we do, and we're able to see things that he couldn't see, and it should give us hope.
But we're still limited somewhat by our temporal experiences, right? We're stuck in this world and we get fixated on this world and we think, man, this really stinks and this life is really not very fun and I better get everything I can right now because if I don't, I don't know what's next. But you should. So in these verses, the first eight verses, he, here's what he compares in that little song. There is a season. There is a time. There's a time for birth, a time for death, a time for planting, a time for harvesting. And he's basically looking at life and he's saying there are times to do one thing and do another. And they're just, they're kind of bookends of life. There's a time when you plant. There's a time when you sow. There's a time when you tear. There's a time when you mend. There are these seasons of life, but it's all stuck within time. All bound by time because he is a man bound by time. And he's viewing life from that temporal perspective. And if you get stuck in that, just like if you get stuck in a life of doing, it ends up in vanity. If you get stuck in a life of the temporal, it ends up in vanity. Again, he's just trying to warn you and me. It can end up in dissonance. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? You know, I have had to meet with couples who've lost infants right after they were born. And here's what they want to know. Why? See, there's a dissonance to a baby is born, a baby dies. That's not the way it's supposed to be, right? A baby's born, a baby lives, an old man dies. When I buried, the very first funeral I did as a pastor was a 16-year-old girl who was pregnant and was killed in a car wreck. And she was not a believer. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It, it created dissonance in my heart. Why God? Why did this happen? Why this girl? Why this baby? What did the baby do? What's going on here? This is life under the sun, guys. And this is what he's trying to tell us. And it can, if you get stuck on the, under the sun and you lose sight of eternity, it leads to despair. But it shouldn't for us as believers. And thirdly, it leads to depression. You get down. Do you ever get depressed watching the news? I get angry and then I get depressed. Because you look at it and go, what is going on here? Why is this happening? What's going what's to make it better? What can we do to change it? And everybody, everybody has an idea, but guess what? It's sin. I mean, I just approve of it, but it's this idea that you just, you go from dissonance to despair to depression. If you live a life based on the temporal, right? And every guy in this room could, could honestly testify to that fact, right? You've experienced that in your life. And all Solomon's trying to do is, guys, I lived it big time. I did it all. I did things you'll never dream of doing. I tried things you could never afford to do. And I'm telling you, it doesn't add up. Life under the sun does not add up. So what's the byproduct of a temporal-focused life? It's immediate gratification. i got to have it now. That's the mantra of our society. It, it's what drives all, almost all product manufacturing, creation, and advertising. you got to have it now. You order something on Amazon, you can have it today. Oh gosh, I can have it today. I don't need it today. 
but I could have it today. That's just immediate gratification. And it's amazing what it does to you. It's like your adrenaline goes, you know, I could have this today. I could have a cover for my grill today. If you said that to somebody, like you went, honey, 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 I'm buying a grill cover and I can have it today. And she'll go, who cares? Why do you even need a grill cover? It's meant to be outside. But see, it's, it's this idea of, I got to have it now. Eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Do it now. Get it now. Have fun now. Get it all now. Live life to all its gusto now. That's a temporal-focused life. But look at what Romans 6.23 says. The gift of God, the reward of God is what? Eternal life. Well, what? I got to wait around for that? You may not have to wait that long. But that's the reward God has. It's not all this stuff. It's not getting a, a grill cover today dropped off on your doorstep. It's eternal life. I love what Jesus said. Come, all you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, for you to inherit that kingdom, guess what? You're going to have to wait. Well, I don't want to wait. I want my kingdom now. I want my blessings now. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm blogging through the book of Joshua right now. And there's a, you know the story of Jericho where they marched around the wall seven times, the wall fell, and God had said, whatever you do, don't take any plunder. It all belongs to me. And there's one bozo, Achan, who decided that I'm going to do it my way. He saw some things he wanted. He stole them. He buried them in his tent. And the next city they went to was Ai. And Ai was a small town. And they decided, hey, we've just destroyed Jericho, so we don't even need all of our men. Just send 3,000. And they ended up getting routed by the people of Ai. And 36 Israelites died. And then they all mourn, and they're all throwing, throwing their you know, dust in the air, and they're all upset, and they're wondering what happened, and God said, I'll tell you what happened, you got sin in your camp. And Achan stole from God. So Achan and his family and his children are all stoned to death. Horrible story. But here's what Achan didn't know if he had just waited. Because when God sent them back to attack Ai, he said, and now... Take all the plunder you want. See, Achan wanted it now. God was just saying, wait. Think about that when you buy something, when you have to have something. I love it again. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Is Jesus saying you can't have nice things? No. He's saying, don't be obsessed with my thing. Don't put your heart into the treasures of earth where you want to put it in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if, you're, if your treasure's on this earth, that's going to be where your heart is. That's when people steal from you, it really destroys you. When people don't respect your property, it really irritates you. When something happens to your home, you get angry about it because that's your treasure. 
But see, as Christians, our treasure's in heaven. Different mindset than what Solomon has. So since the eternal is invisible, what do we do? We get stuck on the temporal. And we all do it. And Solomon would just say over coffee, man, let me give you some advice. Don't live your life that way. It doesn't add up. And I can't help but think of Luke 8, verse 14. We allow the eternal to get choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. See, life is full of pleasure. It's full of joy. It's full of great things. And rightfully so, because they're blessings of God. But if you make them your focus, they will eventually let you down. And they actually rob you of life. They rob you of joy. And... and, I know I give these really silly examples, but this is how it pans out in my life. So Monday, my wife's out of town. She's in Ethiopia. So Monday, Memorial Day, my uh, daughter and her husband, and they called and said, hey, can we come over and swim in the pool? And I said, sure, I need to clean it, but y'all come over about noon. And I had already grilled some stuff and said, come on over. So I went outside to clean the pool and I turned on the pump, and he goes, mm, not the noise it's supposed to make. And there's nothing happening in the pool. And then suddenly the pump just starts to smoke. I don't think it's supposed to do that. And I got so defeated. I got to clean this pool. I can't clean the pool because the pump won't work. And all of a sudden, dollar signs. So I call... My friend Terry, who happens to come on Thursday nights, who happens to be a pool guy, and he said, I can't get out to after the holidays, and, and, it, and it was just like I got lower and lower over a stinking pool pump. The focus on the now, the focus on money, the focus on disappointment, and it leads us back to the First John passage we looked at last week. A craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions. If these things become your life focus, you will live a life of vanity. Hear me. Hear Solomon. He's not saying these things are wrong. He's not saying don't do. He's not saying don't own, don't buy, don't accumulate. He's just saying don't make those things your focus and don't live your life focused on the temporal. Because you're an eternal creature. So what's the requirement? For living a temporal focused life, self-determination, it's all about you. There's nothing better than to be joyful and do good as long as you live. You determine what's right. You determine what's good. You determine what makes you happy. You determine how you want to live your life. He says this again. There's nothing better. That is his lot. Lot means your inheritance. Isn't that sad that Solomon at the end of his life says, after everything I've done, my inheritance is just enjoy the things you got. That's all I got. That's all you get. But what did we just read from the lips of Jesus? It's eternity. It's eternal life. It's joy everlasting. It's a relationship with God the Son and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But see, he looks at life and he thinks, this is my inheritance. This is my share. This is all I get, so I better enjoy it. And so many people live their life that way, including many Christians. But what does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, guys, is real. Heaven exists. Heaven is a promise of God. Heaven is the reason Jesus Christ died. Not so we can go to this place that's got clouds and 
angels and harps so that we can have unbroken, undiminished fellowship, perfect intimacy with He and the Father forever with nothing standing in the way. That's what our hope should be placed in. So you can't control eternity. Solomon would say, just enjoy the here and now. Bad advice. Bad advice. He spent his whole life building an earthly kingdom. Why? Because he wasn't sure about the next kingdom. He wasn't sure about eternity. So he says, there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. What's he saying? Nobody knows what comes next, so just live for now. Nobody knows what heaven's like. Nobody knows what eternity's like, so live for now. You can't control your day of death, so enjoy life while you can. Live for the gusto. And I love this. This, this gives you a real clue into the mind of Solomon. He who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. I want a t-shirt that says that. Right? I want that on a plaque to put in my office. But that's a sad way to live your life, right? A living dog is better than a dead lion. But that's the way he looked at it. If I die, what happens? Well, for the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing, for they have no more reward. That gives you a really good clue what he thought about eternity, the afterlife. No more reward. Got to get it now. And then they're all forgotten. So what's his end-of-life assessment of the temporal lifestyle? It's vanity. He says, what happens to the children of man? What happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Is that a depressing statement? No doubt about it. Is it a true statement? No. Because we know the answer. We know the answer is that it's not the same for beasts and animals. Yes, we all die, but we go somewhere. We have a future. We have a hope. We have an eternal future. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Who knows? God knows. And God has revealed the truth to you and I through the New Testament, through the Gospels, through the letters of Paul, through the book of Revelation. We know the future and we don't have to live like Solomon lived. And yet, sometimes we do. We're godly men who sometimes live godless lives. And we don't have to and we shouldn't. So what's the futility of it all? A, focus, a temporal focused life? Time just repeats itself. He says that over and over again. It fails to address eternity in our hearts. It's limited in duration. It comes with positive and negatives. And since our pleasure comes from our toil, you can't stop toiling. You just got to keep working. You just got to keep going. It's full of injustices and inequities, and we'll get into those in later chapters. And it all ends in death no matter who you are. That's the summary of chapter 3. But again, we know the truth. We know the hope. So in Luke chapter 12, and I'm just going to blow through this. You can go back and read these. Jesus has a lot to say about this issue of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is one of the things you see in Solomon's life. I love God. I believe in God. I just don't trust God. I know he says there's a heaven, but I don't, I'm going to live for now. And so his life was full of disconnections. Jesus tells the story of a rich man who had a farm that produced fine crops. And he said, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. 
Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones, then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods, I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come, now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Where did he get that from? Solomon. This is Jesus quoting Solomon. But God said, you fool, you'll die this very night. Then who will get everything that you work for? That was Solomon's greatest nightmare. I build all the stuff, I get all the stuff, I accumulate all the stuff, and then i got to leave it to some fool I don't know. And Jesus said, that's what's going to happen. You don't have everything you need. You can go eat, drink, and be merry, but you are a fool because you will die tonight. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. That's the whole point of tonight. If you missed everything else, walk out with that. It's about a rich relationship with God. And then in Matthew chapter 6, he tells another story. I tell you, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food? Isn't your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant. They don't harvest. They don't store food in barns. Think of the first story. For your heavenly Father feeds them, and aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? What's the answer? No. But we worry. And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't work or make clothing. And then listen to this. This is Jesus, once again, referencing Solomon. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. See, we can learn from Solomon. We can grow from Solomon. We can understand from Solomon because Solomon made mistakes. Solomon didn't live the way he should have lived. He didn't know all that we know but it, wouldn't it be sad for you to know what you do know and still live like Solomon? Still live futilely? So Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Does that mean God's going to give you everything you lust after? No. But he's going to give you things you never dreamed you needed. And you're going to have joy as a result. So here's your questions, guys. What are some experience, evidences that you are living a temporal-based life? Just think about it. Be honest. What do you do that shows that you are kind of living a temporal-based life? And what can you do to change it? In what ways is your life marked by the vanity of doing? Why do you think accomplishment is so important to us? And what could it be taking the place of in our lives that it shouldn't? And then finally, discuss concrete ways in which you can begin to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're all familiar with that verse. I just don't think we really understand what it looks like. So those are your discussion questions. I, I pray you'll stay and be part of the discussion and learn and share and be open and be honest. And if you don't have an answer to some of these or you're afraid to share your answer, listen. But let God speak. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for their attentiveness. I pray, Father, that you would speak to them around the tables. I pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see what you would have us learn from the lips of Solomon. Lord, I thank you that we know how the story ends. I thank you that we have the book of Revelation. We have your word, your promises, that there is a life after death. There is hope for us. There is an eternity. There is forgiveness of sins. There is so much out there that I don't have to get it all here and now. But I also want to thank you that you bless me in so many ways here and now. Just don't let me worship the blessings. Don't let me worship the gifts instead of the giver. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.